Hi, everyone. I'm Julie Gunlock, your host for the first ever episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour, where the focus will be on custom tailored parenting that best fits you, your family, and most importantly, your kids. So I guess the first thing that I should do on this podcast is tell you what I mean by bespoke parenting. What is it? Or even more fundamentally, what in the heck does the word bespoke even mean? And what does it have to do with parenting? That is a good question. And I will try to answer it. Um, first things first, the, the word bespoke means custom made. And it's usually, um, it's usually used when talking about clothing. So bespoke clothing, you know, a, a really fancy dress or a very expensive suit. Um, it is the opposite of off the rack clothing or ready-made clothing. Um, so, you know, when you, you know, summer comes around, you need a couple more shorts or t-shirts, you go to Old Navy, there are, you know, 60 t-shirts, they all are exactly the same in different sizes. You pick your size, it fits fine, may not fit perfectly, but it's good enough. That's off the rack clothing. That is a fairly new phenomenon. It's only, it was, it, it really only became ubiquitous in the 20th century. Before that, people made their own clothes. That's why if, you know, you have a, if you, if any of you have ever bought a house that was built in the 1930s or before, you know, you have these bedrooms with one teeny closet. I mean, walk-in closets are a new thing, okay? And these teeny closets were perfectly fine because, you know, people had a couple dresses or a couple suits. They had their Sunday best, you know, and, um, but they didn't have a tremendous amount of clothing. And the reason is, is they either had to have it made at great expense or they made it themselves. Um, and so bespoke clothing still exists. You know, the, the, the really big designers have what's called haute couture clothing. Um, and that's bespoke that is made, that is tailored to the person. Um, and that is exactly what bespoke is. It is clothing that is tailored to your precise measurements. Um, and it fits you perfectly. So how this relates to parenting, you're like, is this a fashion podcast or are we ever going to talk about parenting? So the reason this to me made a lot of sense um, with parenting is because when I first became a parent, um, I was, as most new parents are, I was eager to read all the parenting books and all the how-tos and how the best ways and really trying to understand really what I saw as the best way to parent, but also try to establish a parenting philosophy. And nothing really felt like it, it quite fit. Um, I wasn't reading something that fit with my lifestyle, with my children, with my needs and wants and desires and hopes. It felt, if you will, like off the rack parenting advice. And I started to think, you know, I need to really come up with my own parenting philosophy that's tailor-made, that fits me and my family perfectly. So that's kind of why I call it the bespoke parenting philosophy. No one knows my kids better than me. No one understands my family circumstances, my needs, wishes, what I hope for my children and my children, um, their likes, their dislikes. Um, I am the best expert on my family. So... That's why I believe in tailoring of a, a parenting philosophy that's best for you. Now, I want to be very clear here. This does not mean experts aren't valuable and can't be helpful. They certainly can, 
especially when it comes to medical questions like vaccines or any health issues that your child might have. Um, certainly developmental issues. You should really talk to qualified people in that field um, and psychological issues. It is really, really critical that you trust people who have studied these issues. I do not want this to be the anti-vax podcast or the I'm just going to feed my children miso soup because I think it protects against measles better than the vaccine, as one Hollywood star said. Um, I think experts are are important. What I'm talking about are more of the things that you do every day. Is my child mature enough to walk around the block without me being with them? Can they ride their bike alone to school? Um, can they go up to the store with a grocery list and five dollars? Um, you know, when to potty train? Um, you know, when they're ready? When are they ready to get out of their crib? A lot of these decisions should be made based on your own instinct. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about here um, is is trying to get people to to sort of trust their instincts and trust themselves to make good decisions, not totally ignore the experts, but maybe, you know, maybe not rely on them quite so much. So that's sort of the elevator speech on bespoke parenting. And we're going to have a lot of guests on um, to cover those issues, to talk about different parenting strategies, um, to talk about how they do it. Um, and not to say it's right or wrong, but just to give people a little bit of information. I'd like to also talk a little bit about myself, and I'm going to make this very quick because I don't want people to tune out because they're so bored. But um, I uh, am the mother of three boys, all boys. Uh, one is 13. I have a, a 11-year-old and a 10-year-old. So it's what's called st stair steps. I had them <laughs> one right after the other. So it has... <laughs> I at one point had three boys in diapers. It was not fun. Um, I am married to a guy I met when I was 24 years old working on Capitol Hill. Um, we now live outside of D.C. in a suburb outside D.C. And my kids all attend the local school, uh, lo local public school. We will be talking about that a lot on this podcast because it is just um, always a source of humor and sh shock and awe. Um this year, actually, though, I will be homeschooling my oldest, possibly more. So that, too, will be a great subject as I try to navigate a very new educational system. I'm very excited about it. Luckily, my parents live close by. They are very um, energetic, very healthy grandparents, and they spend a lot of time with their grandkids, and they help me a lot. So I'm very lucky in that regard. But I will say one of the best things about my life um, is that I get to work with an amazing group of women who are also my dear friends, uh, two of which will be on this podcast today talking about school openings. Um, we all work at the Independent Women's Forum. It is a think tank in Washington, D.C. that focuses on economic and cultural issues, and it is producing this podcast. So thank you to IWF and thank you also to the producer Tim who is a whiz um, so I would be remiss if I did not thank IWF for producing this podcast at IWF I run a program called the Center for Progress and Innovation um, and it focuses this is sort of this is like the official line on what it does it focuses on how human innovation is the key to improving the human condition and that the modern world is something to celebrate not regulate into non-existence so that's sort of the the, um, you know, the fancy uh, explanation of what 
the center does. But really what the center does in, in a more co- sort of common sense, in more common sense language, is I try to reassure mom that the modern world is not going to kill them and their kids. And I know that may sound weird, but you see it every day. Every time you go to the grocery store and you see the organic fruit and, and you think to yourself, oh, I think that's healthier, right? So you buy the more expensive organic fruit. Or every time you see something labeled BPA-free, you may not know what that means, but I guess I'm supposed to get the BPA-free stuff, right? Even though it's more expensive. Or every time you go to apply sunscreen on your your kid who's at the beach, right, and uh, and you think, oh, am I? is it okay to... I, I read this article that said that sunscreen causes cancer. So should I do that? Well, the sun also causes cancer. Okay. So use your sunscreen. This is the kind of world that we live in right now where everything is worthy of alarmism. The most, the, the most mundane task from packing your kids a snack to being rushed and needing to get them a quick dinner to deciding on which apples to buy in the grocery store is a fraught decision. And you are often told, you know, if you really want to be a good parent or the best parent, or if you want to do it better, or if you want your child to truly thrive, you will buy a particular thing. And often that thing is a product that's more expensive or is somehow missing something that is deemed harmful. Most of those claims are untrue, and they encourage parents um, to spend more money on on items, but they also encourage parents to sort of get behind attempts to ban other products or put restrictions or taxes on other products. That's a cost uh, that, that affects everybody. Um, so in my in my Center for Progress and Innovation, we try to knock down those myths that everything in the marketplace is harmful. Um, and so we do it in a, in a very friendly way, in an understandable way, taking on the science and making it a little bit more understandable. I think that fits in well with this podcast. Uh, again, because I said parenting in general has become scarier. It's become more intense, more competitive, more judgy. And a lot of this is because of the narrative we hear from the so-called parenting experts, but also non-experts like celebrities and mommy bloggers and green mommies and activists and Instagram mommies. So I hope to have on a, a few guests um over the next year to really talk about that, talk about how parenting has changed um, and talk about how it's become more difficult and talk about how um, parents really are told there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. If any subject deserves a huge gray area, it is the parenting issue. There is no right way to do it. There is no wrong way to do it. Of course, do not hit your head. Of course, do not, you know, hit your kids and don't, you know, you know, there, there's some common sense things we all know, but in terms of, you know, some of the questions about, um, what to feed them and what, um, you know, their screen time and other things, it really is subjective and parents need to make the best decisions for their families and, and for their individual children. Children are, you know, they really are like snowflakes. None are the same and you have to adapt your parenting style to each child. Each family is going to have a different way of doing that. And, as parents, we should respect other people's decisions. Um, so, of course, 
it would be weird to launch a new podcast on the subject of parenting without talking at least a little bit about the thing that's paramount on every parent's mind, school openings in the age of COVID-19. So a show of hands, will it ever happen? (laughs) My hand did not go up. Um, Before I introduce my guest today, let's talk a little bit about where we are. So I live in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, They made the announcement last month that they will not tell parents the final plans until August 12th. So I am, I have no idea what my child's learning is going to look like. It hampers my ability to make decisions on whether I should pull the trigger in homeschool, whether I should consider private schools. It, and, and frankly, by August 12th, you've already missed most of, um, you know, the online application time. You can't enroll your child in a, in a private school after August 12th. That's just far too late. So my school district is really, I would say, and I use the, I, I, I willingly use this word. It is, is keeping parents, keeping parents hostage to the public school. Because again, in order to make a decision, I need to know the facts. And so the Alexandria public school, um, district is not telling parents until August 12th. So that is a real shame. Other schools are giving parents some sense. And I think even in the neighboring town, Arlington, they recently, uh, they changed the guidance, but they did give the guidance. They gave the guidance in, I think, late June and said, basically, you have two choices. You can do all online or you can do a shorter, like just you know, all online for, for four days, or you can do two days of in-person learning. Um, and, and and those were two terrible options, but at least it gave parents the, you know, the, it gave them a sense of what the options were. Um, and at that point, the parents could say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to homeschool or I'm going to go to a private school. At least they knew. Um, Arlington has since walked that back, but they walked it back last, like, I think three days ago. So again, there's still time for many of these parents to make um, other decisions. And when I say walk back, they, they said that there will be no online Uh, I'm sorry, no in-person learning. So Arlington is going to go entirely online. And that is what a lot of school districts are doing. And I think the ones who haven't announced will probably do that. We've seen some calls, renewed calls to shut down. Several states have reversed reopening plans and are now shutting down businesses for a second time. There has been an uptick of cases due to the Black Lives Matter protests, as well as many of the large gatherings, uh, the Black Lives uh, Matter gatherings. Um, So we have seen an uptick in that. What nobody seems to be talking about is, are we seeing an uptick among young people? It's clear that we are not. Um, We are seeing an uptick in the same demographic that are vulnerable to to this disease. the decision of whether to open the schools has also become quite political. Um, we've seen, you know, President Trump and Secretary of Education Bet- Betsy DeVos urging uh, schools to open, but uh, that is is not popular with the Democrats, uh, who seem to just react opposite to what Trump says. I, in fact, wish Trump had said, "Let's close down," because maybe then the Democrats and the teachers unions would have said, "Hey, no, let's open up. Let's be." It's like opposite day with Trump. Whatever he says, they say the opposite. So I was sort of hoping, you know, I was thinking maybe if Trump says, "Let's keep them closed," um, these two, you know, officials, uh, these two groups, the Democrats and and the teachers unions. Uh, but I repeat myself. Um, 
would would urge a reopening, but they have not. Um, the teachers' unions are saying that schools should remain fully closed. Uh, Demo- many Democrats, um, Nancy Pelosi and many other Democrats in leadership are saying the same. Also, of course, the Never Trump contingent um, is is echoing uh, that. What's interesting, though, too, is uh, we... we <laughs> We had an announcement from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is the, you know, this is the professional organization for pediatricians. They came out with a very strong statement in favor of reopening schools. But then the teachers unions jumped all over AAP um, for having the, you know, nerve to suggest that and, you know, and, and said all this stuff about how teachers are going to be in grave danger. And so the AAP sort of said, well, only reopen if things are, you know, going to be safe. Well, of course, you know, we didn't think, nobody thought the AAP was saying, you know, you should reopen, um, you know, if it's, if, you know, with no, with no cleaning guidelines, with no distancing guidelines. I think it's pretty clear that when Trump and Betsy DeVos say open the schools, um, they mean, you know, with appropriate, you know, guidelines, um, social distancing or wash stations or, you know, no, you know, the kids not moving around the classroom, certainly putting some steps in place um, to ensure that, that there's a lower risk of transmission is, is obvious. Um, it's been very interesting to read some of the, the, uh, the articles on this New York times has done some great coverage on how the online learning hurts minorities and poor children. Just this morning, you know, school districts also have these new problems. Like, uh, I, I saw this just this morning in the Washington times, um, that school buses, school bus drivers, there's a massive shortage of school bus drivers. Some are not going to return. And so how do you transmit these kids? Um, New York Times also had an article yesterday talking about how in some towns you have this split between public schools and private schools. Uh, Many public schools have already announced that they're going to totally shut down, whereas private schools are opening up. So there you have another one of these splits that's you know, adding to the anger and frustration for parents that are stuck in the public schools. And, you know, the last thing I want to talk about is some of the polling of parents, of working parents, of young kids. Um, There was a poll done in April of working parents of young kids, and they asked them how they were holding up as childcare providers and preschools shut down. You know, the answer was obviously not great. But at the time, only 6% said that they expected that they would need to leave their jobs in order to care for their children. Half said they currently had some form of childcare and 53% said they expected to change up their current situation in order to get more help from family members. So that wasn't good, but when the same polling firm repeated the poll just last month, so June, the situation had grown really, really bad. In the new poll, a full 27% of respondents said they expected to have to leave their job. Um, 35% um, said they have some form of non-parental child care and only 28% managed to get family help. Um, So these stats are deteriorating. When you add to that in the summer months, most summer camps, certainly I, the summer camps my kids usually go to, and they don't go to many. I usually do one each, um, but all of them are closed. And most summer camps are, are struggling or closing altogether. Summer camps tend to, to, to survive on a razor's, you know, 
edge here. They're, they're, they're not huge money makers and they carry tons of liability. Um, and so met for many of them, I, I suspect it was, it's just too hard to survive a summer of not operating. Um, 40% of daycares are saying that they expect to close their doors permanently. What are parents going to do if their regular daycare closes and there isn't a, uh, there, first of all, there isn't an obvious replacement, but also it seems like there's probably going just to be less care, you know, less daycare centers out there and, and then less competition. So that's a, that's a scary reality there. Um, you know, coupled that with the continued school shutdowns, because once your child gets to school age, you can take them out of daycare and schools usually offer before care and after care. So you can, you know, do a full day of work just using the services through the public schools and, and, and private schools. Many private schools also offer some sort of before care and after care. So here to talk about this a bit more are my two good friends, Jennifer Basaris and Carrie Lucas. Uh, before we hear from them, let me give you just a quick bio um, on these two fabulous ladies. Carrie is the president of the Independent Women's Forum. Um, she's the co-author of Liberty is No War on Women and the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Women, Sex, and Feminism. Um, she is a writer for National Review, Forbes, and a number of other impressive publications, um, as well as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Jennifer, uh, the equally impressive Jennifer Basaris, is the director of the Independent Women's Law Center. Um, she is a former commissioner of the U.S., uh, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Um, she went to Harvard Law School, and um, she frequently contributes to the Wall Street Journal and the Boston Globe, The Hill, National Review Online. And Jennifer is actually joining us from vacation, so an extra big hand for Jennifer for joining us. Thank you, ladies, for coming on to the first episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. No problem. <laughs> Thanks for having us on, Julie. Um so Jennifer, I want to start with you. You wrote a piece uh, a couple about a month ago, um, talking about the data, talking about the impact the impact on school closures and why schools should fully reopen this fall. Talk to me a little bit about that piece. It's very, very data heavy. You really provide parents some good information. I actually used your data uh, to write a letter to my school board, which I'm sure was totally ignored went straight into the trash or the shredder. Um, but I think a lot of parents have used this information. I certainly have tweeted this out. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. And then if you could also pivot to, um, you know, do you think things have changed? Do you think, uh, you know, we can, we can talk about that further. But first, tell us a little bit about what you found when you were researching, you know, the risk of COVID-19 to kids and, and schools. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, I started to collect the data just for myself and some other moms in my community when we were preparing for a meeting with the superintendent, um, and we just we wanted to have the data at our fingertips. And so I started to put it together and organize it in this document, um, sort of by topic. And well, as you know, I shared it with you, and and you said, well, you should really publish this as a blog post because other people could use this information too, which was a great idea. Um, so we put it up at IWF, and and hopefully it's helped other parents find some of the resources as well because 
there's lot, there are a lot of long form articles about it um, that you know take a position one way or the other, but it's hard to just find bullet points that tell you what you need to know about yeah. specific things. The risk to kids of getting COVID, the risk to kids of getting seriously ill from COVID, the risk of them spreading it to each other, the risk of them spreading it to teachers. So I sort of went through each of these um, points and provide the information that shows that, you know, they're at very low risk of getting it. They're at very low risk of becoming seriously ill uh, from COVID. They are not super spreaders. They rarely spread it to each other or to adults. Um, if anything, adults spread it to them, but usually only within the same household. Um, and this, at the time, I felt like this was information that just wasn't really getting out. And there was a lot of fear amongst the parent yeah. community. And I wanted to try to dispel some of that fear. Well, I, you know, just for parents that are listening, I want to just give you a couple of the bullet points that Jennifer put in her piece. You know, she, she divides it up also by, you know, children and teens are much less likely than adults to contract COVID. And she has some bullet points there. For instance, you know, international research confirms that the percentage of children among the confirmed COVID-19 patients is low, ranging from 1% in young children to 6% in older children. Um, you know, Mass General has said that children appear to have a lower attack rates than adults if exposed to COVID-19 are less likely to become infected. So, you know, they might actually touch something that, you know, has been, you know, has, you know, COVID-19 and and they will not then become infected. You also go into um, the the area of super spreaders, as you mentioned, you know, uh, and you give several links to Wall Street Journal articles, uh, Dr. Um, uh, Scott Atlas um, at the Hoover Institute saying that children rarely transmit the disease to adults. We have a, a clip of him actually talking about that. Let's listen to that. There is zero, virtually zero risk to children for getting something serious or dying from this disease. Anyone who thinks schools should be closed is not talking about the risk to children. That's factually true, and they, and they should say that. It has nothing to do with the children's risk. Now, let's talk about the risk to teachers. Mm -hmm. The teachers are, yeah, because this is probably the big, the big fear here, obviously. The teachers, first of all, are a young population in the United States. K through 12 teachers, half of them are under 41, 82% are under 55. These are not high risk age groups. We know this by now. And it's true that there are high risk teachers and those teachers should be able to believe in their social distancing and masks like they do for every other essential business when they go to the grocery store, for instance. They can teach using social distancing. And if they're still afraid, they can stay at home. There's no reason to lock up the children. And, you know, there, so there's just a tremendous amount of good news out there, of good uh, data out there that should be reassuring people. But the closer we get, the closer we get to school openings, we're seeing more of the alarmism out there. President Trump talked about this um, as well. He and Betsy DeVos, Secretary Betsy DeVos have been very clear that they want schools to open. Maybe we could listen to that clip as well. Mothers can't go to work because all of a sudden they have to stay home and watch their child and fathers. Uh, what's happening? You know, there's a tremendous strain on that whole side of the equation. So it's a balancing, it's a balancing act. It is a balancing act, but that we have to open our schools. Well, I also say a decision like that is politics. So Jennifer, um, and I, I want Carrie to weigh in on this too, but Jennifer, just quickly, you know, it's just, 
Talk a little bit about the political. Trump also mentioned the political aspect of this. What has the reaction been since Trump said that? You know, he also mentioned the American Academy of Pediatrics, which came out, you know, NPR called the American Academy of Pediatrics statement a firm endorsement of start of opening the schools. Um, and then all of a sudden you see some, well, you know, and, and so Trump mentions this and you see some, oh, whoa, 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 let's back up here. Tell me a little bit about the political aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, I think we were moving in the right direction prior to the president weighing in. And then unfortunately, I think what happened is a lot of people um, school administrators and teachers who don't particularly like the president, um, once they heard that he was for schools opening, they figured they had to be against it. Um, and you had, you know, writers like Jennifer Rubin tweeting out, Donald Trump wants to kill your kids, <laughs> and completely over-politicizing it, and it's just insane. And what I, what I try to tell people is, this really shouldn't be political at all. I get it. You know, if you don't like Donald Trump, that's fine. But even a stopped watch is right twice a day, and he is right about this, whether you agree with him on any other issue or not. Right, right. Um, you know, Carrie, I want to talk to you a little bit. Carrie, actually, for listeners, I didn't mention this in her bio, but Carrie actually lives in Germany. And so I thought bringing her on to talk about how things have been handled in Germany, um, where, where schools are open. Um, I want Carrie to give a little bit of perspective on, you know, I know the schools in Germany are open, so you can tell us about that. But you know what? What are the conditions? Like, are there, uh, is there social distancing? Are the are the desks far apart? Is there cleaning stations? Give us a little insight into what's happened in Germany, and also, just um, how was Germany about the subject of opening schools? Did you see this type of alarmism before it happened, or absolute resistance from, for instance, teachers unions and teachers in general? Yeah, it's been it has been really interesting because I think one thing that's been lost in the conversation about how different countries have approached this problem is the tremendous similarities. Um, you know, I felt I felt like when um, when COVID was first breaking out, there was this this sense that you know Germany was doing everything right and um, America was doing everything wrong. Um, and, and I was a little baffled because if you look at the timing of when Germany to, um, chose to close and kind of the extent of their lock, lockdowns, I think you'll find a lot more similarities um, than differences. But one thing that's been definitely is um, an incredibly different thing um, is just how the public reacts to um, policymakers' decisions. You know, when Germany first started reopening, which was, um, you know, I believe, in about early May, you started having some things open, um, and then by mid-May, my kids were uh, back in school on a, um, though on a staggered schedule, and um, wow. so and you, it went on like so, that for so, a little while. Wait, so sorry yeah. to interrupt. So you actually, so in Germany. They reopened this. I think you'd mentioned this to me. Carrie is Carrie and Jennifer are yeah. very good friends of mine. So we do talk. We don't only talk during the podcast, but um, but so your kids. So I'd forgotten. So your kids actually went back in essentially the spring, like for, to end the school year. Yep. Yeah, okay. exactly. They all started. It wasn't it wasn't full time. So um, uh, my kids are in elementary school and high school, and um, and they started going back. Um, a couple, uh, you know, kind of staggered, weird schedules. Um, it was definitely different. They had. As soon as the kids um, walked in, they had to wash their hands. And then instead of changing classrooms, they were more confined to one desk. Um, so uh, classes were smaller. Um, so they did. It was definitely a very different experience. But I feel like everybody in Germany, the focus has been um, getting life back to normal. And it's, it's, not, it's not considered political. But I think one thing that um, I find it makes me sad as an American um, that 
there was no sense. I feel like the Germans were very much like they want things to reopen, but with the idea that, you know, heaven forbid something went wrong, they could reverse course and nobody would be calling people murderers or decide, you know, there wouldn't be the kind of vitriol you see in the States where anybody who opens and it goes badly, you feel like, um, you know, there's just such, um, such a a horrible perception of it. So I I do think that Germany has a lot more leeway when it comes to making these decisions. Well, you're right. It seems like it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, you're, I think that's why some people are very afraid of this is because if something goes wrong, they're afraid of, you know, and certainly local school administrators um, who have really frustrated me. And, you know, I talked about it earlier about my own school district, not uh, not telling parents what's going what what is going on. And that does make me mad. But in some ways, Carrie, you make a good point that part of the reason they're not saying anything is um, is that they don't want to have to reverse and make people mad or um, announce and then proceed. And then when they see things like, you know, Jennifer Rubin saying, you know, uh, people calling to open schools want to kill kids. Um, that does make it, it very, um, very difficult to ultimately make any kind of decision. Um, but I will say it's, it's kind of interesting though, when you look, you know, I look at Jennifer's data, I look at, um, you know, a statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics and most pediatricians, um, saying that, you know, schools are really important and mentally children are kind of suffering now. I also think that it's really important because online learning is just, it's terrible. It does not work. It does not work for the vast majority of kids. New York Times has been doing some pretty amazing reporting on this, talking about how the ones that are hurt the most in online formats are minority and and poor yeah. children. This is pretty obvious um, to us. So what frustrates me a little bit is that um, when you politicize it and say, oh, you know, you open schools, you're going to murder kids. It doesn't allow you to consider these other variables, which are really important, like that kids yeah. are suffering. Yeah, Julie, if, well, I can, well, if I can jump in, like, I, if, if, um, sorry, to talk, to Jennifer, this is, um, yeah, this oh, is no, Carrie again. I think that, I, I think that one thing that, um, um, that, you know, I, I don't want to throw online learning under the bus. I think that there sure. are some families for whom yeah. it works, um, that works yeah. well. Um, I think there are like opportunities to incorporate it. Um, but you, know, it's funny if you think back to uh, just a few months ago before COVID began, became a thing, um, the things we were worried about when it came to, um, to kids, we already had a problem, um, in the developed world with worrying about kids spending too much time online, worrying about their mental health, worrying about things like obesity, whether or not they were going to, um, you know, their motivation levels, substance abuse. And here we are. It's funny. I feel like now you know, this was yeah. the big focus here. Michelle Obama, all she talked about was, was that it was how kids were um, not exercising enough and needed to get right. out of the house more. And now here we are. And it seems as though we don't care about anything Any other than, um, than COVID. And, um, and obviously it's a big problem. There's real risks. You know, I don't, I, I definitely, I think school administrators should be um, you know, monitoring things, make sure that they're taking care of vulnerable populations, be ready to close if something crazy happens, have the leeway to close. But man, like, when, like, aren't we worried about any of these things anymore? Or are we really just re- willing to sacrifice our kids, you know, a, ki- a year of our kids' lives, you know, kids, right. you know, incredibly important times um, developmentally, and just say, nope, you get, to, you get to do absolutely nothing other than sit there and here, stare at a computer for the next nine months. You know, that, you know seems, I, that seems really kind of sad. I want to I want to expand on that a little bit, but Jennifer, I wanted to give you a chance because I heard you were you were going to mention something as well. 
Well, no, I mean, I, I agree with Carrie 100%. I think the data is clear that, you know, that this has had an effect on anxiety and depression levels, particularly amongst teens in the United States. Um, and, you know, people really are forgetting that education isn't just about content delivery. I mean, kids go to school and they learn from their peers and they learn from face-to-face -face interactions with adults. And they're not just learning the content, they're learning, you know, social and emotional things. And that's all been taken away from them with online learning. It doesn't mean that online learning can't be, you know, a piece of it or, and, or you know, our school has offers virtual high school for kids that can't get into a certain class. They can take something online that's offered by a content provider. I mean, there are, there are lots of ways to incorporate online learning into the curriculum, but it, it cannot take the place of face-to-face -face interactions with other adults and kids. It just can't. Right. You know, one thing that really bothers me, and I've noticed this with my own school district, is the utter lack of curiosity and lack of creativity in in looking at these new at this new reality. So you have a situation where um, what I'm seeing from school districts, and I mentioned this earlier, but Arlington, which is the city right next to us, announced they were they gave parents they gave them only three days to decide, and gave them two choices. It was either your child goes to school for a longer well, I think it was probably you know six hours, four to six hours. And you do intensive learning in those two days, and it's but it's in person, it's in the school building, uh, and that was one choice. And the the rest of the week, those th uh, remaining three days, there's nothing. Or you do a four day online course, and it's entirely online. And so parents were really struggling because it's pretty much like it's a Sophie's choice. They're both awful, right? Like which one do I choose? And what's so interesting to me is I I've, I've really found it fascinating. The, um, how good the coverage is in the New York Times on this issue because they've been doing a lot on sort of the equity question, which can sometimes get bogged down in social justice kind of language. But this is really interesting how they're talking about how, like I mentioned, minority um, and, and poor children are really suffering. And so they have actually been thinking creative. The New York Times has been thinking creatively and talking about school districts should be hiring armies of you know, college students that are interested in taking a gap year or my dad is brilliant. He's a, he's an engineer. He's a retired engineer. Um, you know, he, he's, he's incredibly bright in terms of, you know, science and, you know, put a call out to retired, you know, retired people. Hey, want to come in? You don't necessarily have to have, you know, an education degree. Um, and then set up, you know, really creative ways of learning, learning outside, learning in a gymnasium and having or actually deploying teachers into um, neighborhoods for small groups, sort of bubble groups of students who, again, there could be a, a parent who hosts it. But this would take a lot of curiosity and a lot of creativity. And I find that, you know, what the schools are doing is they're just giving parents the same awful options that are no different from the spring. And so a lot of people are frustrated that in this time, you know, we started chatting about, oh, COVID shutdowns in February and March. They've had a lot of time. And then, you know, here come the fall plans and they're no different and no better than the spring plans. So that's what's really frustrating to me. Um, I mean, there's a lot well, of I hate, I hate to say it, Julie, but a lot of that is because of the unions. Because right, of, the of course. Unions. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I should have said that from the beginning. And talk to me about, I mean, you know, you, the, the, the teachers unions are now, I think I'm right here. 
Jennifer, that the teachers unions are now calling for like basically a total shutdown or, you know, no in-person, no, no going to school until what, February or January, I think is what I heard. Well, it's interesting. I mean, in, in our, I live in Massachusetts and, um, you know, where we live, most of the teachers, I think, do want to go back. They recognize the frust- you know, it's frustrating for them to try to deliver the content online, to not look their students in the eye and have that accountability piece. Um, but the unions are, are, you know, don't necessarily represent the, the wishes of their members. And the Massachusetts Teachers Association has been horrible on this. I mean, they are essentially saying that nobody should go back until the federal government passes X, Y, and Z legislation to give them more money to do this, to do that, until we redesign the curriculum, um, you know, to incorporate Black Lives Matter stuff. I mean, they're they're basically throwing up every roadblock possible to keep the schools closed. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. We've all talked about, especially people in... in, um, that follow sort of the homeschooling community, how interesting it is to see people who normally would never be interested in homeschooling or even, you know, even take five minutes to learn about it are suddenly considering it for their families. Um, and you're starting to see frustration. I'm getting, you know, it's funny. I live in a, in a city where you just don't, you don't gripe and you don't complain about city officials and city services. Um, but I get a lot of private messages and people are saying things like, you know, I'm paying property taxes, um, for the schools to educate my children. And now I'm getting substandard or my child has an IEP, you know, he, he has special needs and there's no way they can fulfill his IEP. You know, IEPs are specialized educational services for kids with special needs. They are this, this, the, the, uh, schools are legally bound to meet those, those needs and to do whatever they can. And if they can't, they are supposed to pay for that child to go to another school or to get certain services. I mean, they will even pay if you need your child to go to a, to a certain public school because certain services are are offered there, but they they you know aren't sort of they they don't live in that dist in that area. You can require the school to pay for transportation. I know families who've had taxis paid for by the school district. So there is this I. There is this legal question, too, about, you know, extremely gifted children and IEP students that normally need special services and that cannot possibly be, you know, accommodated under these circumstances. So you're seeing parents now suddenly go, huh, boy, I wish I had more choices or I sure do wish that they give me my money back that I could put towards tutoring. So I do think it's kind of interesting how we're seeing a real sort of awakening to the possibilities out there. Carrie, um, you know, go ahead. Julie, one thing, if I can jump in and say is, you know, I think that when you, um, one thing that's disturbing, I think about, about a lot of this conversation, um, and a lot of what's going on kind of surrounding the education is how little, um, how, well, how much the kids seem to be, um, and education seems to be secondary. Um, I feel like so much of the school conversation is about the vulnerabilities of teachers. Well, not to get you wrong. I mean, obviously, it's incredibly important, and there's a lot of hardworking, dedicated teachers out there who um, you know, shouldn't be pushed out of their jobs. They need to find ways to, to incorporate them. But the kind of innovative thing we were talking about earlier with, um, with bringing in some um, your recent college grads who obviously there's a huge problem with um, them lacking employment, there are a lot of things you can, you can do. I, I do have the sense in Germany 
that there is a, a focus that this, this actually really matters, that, um, and that even the kind of default that the freedom of movement, um, government should be, you know, if you're not sure what to do, you know, if there's a question of, um, you know, or should we open, should we not open? Um, and I think, you know, my gosh, as, a, as Americans, we're supposed to be the land of the free, for heaven's sakes. Um, there should be a basic, if you're not sure, then people should be free. Yeah. Like people, yeah, we should well, not yes, tell people yes. they have to, right. yeah, that, that they have to do something. So right. I do think that when it comes to some of this, um, you know, it's sad to me that we seem uh, that so much of, of America, and especially when it comes to this school thing, is now like do no harm. And if that means locking kids in, um, tying them, you know, with a sticking a laptop or a, um, a right. Game Boy in their hands for the next um, nine months, that that's an okay default. You know, that really shouldn't be. We should be figuring out well, ways to get people, you know, life is for living, not just for, uh, you know, sitting safely um, in front of a computer. Yeah. And, and, and there is, a, a, there is something about a quality of life. I mean, living isn't just sitting there and breathing. It's a quality of life and it's, and for children, it's educating exactly. them and making, and, and getting them ready to be citizens of the world. You know, I also think it's really interesting and I feel, I feel like this is a whole nother bespoke parenting hour. We'll have to get into this. I'll, I'll keep you guys on for two more hours if I go too far down this route. But it's interesting to me with, that when the, and I wrote an op-ed on this for the USA Today, um, you know, about the sort of the other services uh, that are being offered through the so-called closed schools, okay? Continued school meal distribution um, is one thing that when COVID shut down, you had people going, oh my gosh, kids are going to starve. Now, okay, <laughs> we should all be asking ourselves, what, why, right? I mean, look at look at the number of social services now provided through the schools. I mean, part of the reason people are freaking out is because they have to work outside the home. And essentially, if they can't send their kids to school, they don't have, the, you know, they don't have essentially daycare for their kids, right? And, and don't, get me wrong. I'm not talking just about the teaching itself. I'm talking about like, there is before care. I can, I can drop my kids off at I think 6 30 AM without breakfast. Not only will they watch them, they will feed them. I can leave my kid at aftercare until I think around seven and they will feed them. Okay. There are wellness centers in schools. There are daycares for children who have babies in schools. Um, all sorts of, you know, condom distribution and other things. Um, schools have become essentially social centers, social service centers. And so, you know, it's interesting to have watched the panic on a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, the panic from people when schools shut down. And, you know, should schools really be doing all of this stuff? I mean, it's uh, it's obvious why education is is secondary to a lot of these folks, because education has been secondary for a long time. Um, Schools do a lot of a, a lot of things outside educating. Um, and so it, it really is, again, I think this is a, a whole, a, a whole wider issue that we should dedicate a podcast to, but, um, but it really has, I think, shown just what a mess our educational system is. Um, so I, I want to wrap up here by, by just asking, you know, maybe Jennifer, you could give me a sense of, we have seen an uptick in the number of infections. And of course the media won't at all mention this, but that is largely due to the demonstrations uh, we saw after George Floyd's death, um, the Black Lives Matter um, 
uh, protests and um, some of the also the violence um, that we've seen uh, and of large group gatherings. Um, so, you know, that is that is going to scare people. Um, and I think that's going to strengthen the argument to close to keep schools closed or to go entirely online. How do you feel about this uptick? And do you think that uh, that, you know, there's any way that schools will open despite this? I think the only relevant question when it comes to schools is not whether there's been an uptick in the general population, but whether there's been an uptick in schools and daycare centers that have reopened. And the answer is that there hasn't been. And and so, you know, if there's an uptick in the general community because, uh, you know, a bunch of college students, you know, went to some bar or because some people went to some protest, that has nothing to do with the question we're trying to address here. Right. Um, the question we're trying to address here is, it, will there be a danger in opening schools? And the answer is very clearly no. You can look at the daycare centers in New York City that stayed open for essential workers the entire time. Teachers get, did not get sick. Teachers did not die from exposure to children. Um, it just didn't happen. And, you know, we keep pitting the teachers against the kids. Well, okay, you know, what about the teachers with with um, underlying conditions? What about the teachers that are older? And the fact of the matter is, yes, they have to take precautions, as Carrie said, they've been doing in Germany. Mostly they need to take precautions from each other. They can't sit next to each other in the teacher's lounge. They can't take their masks off in front of you know, each other because it, it does transmit adult to adult. But the fact of the matter is that teachers are at very low risk of getting this disease from going back to school. Well, Carrie, you're coming back um, uh, soon, and your kids are um, are probably going to, uh, you know, have to go back to sort of, you know, that COVID-type <laughs> schooling. They're probably you're probably not looking forward to that. Yeah, you know, we are staring into um, uh, moving back to the United States um, this fall, most likely, and. Um, and it is, it's, it's funny, it's, it's the kids, kids moves are already always hard on kids, um, but boy, when you're going from fully open schools, which is um, our kids' school here in um, Berlin is expected, you know, planning to open fully functional, um, I'm sure there'll be some kind of additional, like, spacing, and um, they're going to be encouraging kids to um, wash hands, so there's no mask expectations or anything, but that's um, starting in um, mid-August, the kids are supposed to be back, will be, uh, kids here in Berlin will be back in full-time school. Um, and my kids are uh, thinking about going back to the states where um, we're going to be in a, at best, you know, once or twice a week um, in-person regime um, and <laughs> with masks and no sports. My kids are at sports, um, as we're speaking, yeah. my kids are at a, lacro at a lacrosse camp. Um, you know, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's um, you know, the kids, it's really been healthy for them. It was hard when they were all home, and um, and they're they're dreading the idea of having well, to be back in that that environment. So it's it's worrying. Well, you know, and there's no time now, but you know, Jennifer, you also have college age kids, and and there's a struggle there too with you know what will college look. I, I, you know, I I, I think it's well, also we could do a whole another hour on that, Julie. <laughs> Don't get me started. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, they're bringing I, them back and putting them in prisons. Essentially, I think I think I, think I will fully ruin your uh, your uh, vacation if I make you talk about that. So we will skip that topic. But I will say, um, you know, just from a 
I I think all of us are very very lucky because we have we work from home. IWF, uh, the the women of IWF work from home, and we have a tremendous amount of flexibility. That said, I did enjoy eight hours um, of quiet time <laughs> at my house. The, the my big you know my biggest annoyance was when the dog scratched the door to to go out. So. Um, I am actually locked in my bedroom right now. I have a, a lovely desk downstairs and um, where I could be do- doing this podcast, but I'm sort of locked in my room and desperately hoping that the dog doesn't paw on the bedroom door or that a kid doesn't come in and beg me to make him scrambled eggs. So there are complications with this and, uh, and it, it doesn't look like there's, there's any ending to it. So ladies, thank you for, for coming on today. Um, you are my first guest. Uh, for the the premiere episode of of uh, the Bespoke Parenting Hour, so thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Julie. So that was a great conversation with um, with Carrie and Jennifer, and I think it really highlights um, just how how difficult this is for children um, to be out of school, to be out of their social sort of um, interactions with other kids, um, to be out of their routines. Parents are frustrated, particularly. Um, particularly working parents, really worried about things. Um, uh, but, but I do think I want to, I want to leave this podcast on a, on giving people some perspective that, you know, it's obvious that kids today are experiencing something completely different from anything they've ever experienced before. Um, but other generations have experienced similar frightening, upsetting, sort of schedule, um, uh, disrupting hardships. Um, and I think it's always good to kind of put things in perspective. I often do this with moms when they worry about, you know, occasionally taking, um, a, you know, taking a break, using a shortcut, putting a frozen pizza in the fridge and they're just riddled with guilt. And I, you know, I tell them, look, you know, uh, you know, hundred years ago, you know, so many kids died of malnutrition. We're very lucky to have these conveniences and life is different and life is, is busier. And so I want to kind of give people a little bit of perspective, um, on that, you know, that in, in recent history, just the past 100 years. So that, that is very recent history. Kids have experienced war, food shortages, and hardships we can't even imagine today. During the great depression, 34 million men, women, and children were entirely without income. There was no safety net. This was 28% of the American people then, and a quarter of a million children were homeless. At least one in five were, were deeply, deeply despondent and very seriously hungry and malnourished. Many of them did not have adequate clothing. I think it's really important to understand the condition of children during the depression and immediately after it. It was a really horrible time in our history and children suffered terribly. In some regions, especially coal mining regions, as many as 90% of children were were terribly malnourished. We know we've seen the pictures. I'm sure all of you are familiar with the pictures taken by Dorothea Lang and Marion Post Walcott, Lewis Hine. These are heartbreaking photographs, and they capture the, the physical and emotional toll um, that these terrible living conditions took on children. In the 1930s, we had our first child labor laws, um, and, and that was great. That was a really positive sign. But when you read about this, you realize that this was not because of an altru- altruistic desire to help these kids. It was because 
too many kids were competing with adults for menial jobs. So I leave you with this image because I think that it's important to remember that kids are strong, that parents are strong, that we have, this country has been through terrible things before we have survived, we have grown stronger. Today we have a lot of services in place to help people, um, sort of the social safety net to, to prevent these kinds of horrors that happened in the Great Depression. Um, so I just wanted to leave you with a little bit of perspective. We will get through this. Um, it will get better. And eventually we will, we will return our children to school. Thanks everyone for being here for another episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. If you enjoyed this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure that the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. If you haven't subscribed to the Bespoke Parenting Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, please do so so you won't miss an episode. Don't forget to share this episode and let your friends know that they can get Bespoke episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.